0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in the American South, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Catherine Burnett and Monica Miller about their new edited collection, The Tacky South published 2022 by LSU Press, as a part of the Southern Literary Studies series. Katie and Monica also edited the new, uh, the Rutledge Companion to Literature of the U.S. South, along with Todd Hagstedt. Katie Burnett is Associate Professor of English at Fisk University and author of Cavaliers and Economists, Global Capitalism and the Development of Southern Literature, 1820 to 1860. And Monica Monica Miller is Assistant Professor of English at Middle Georgia State University and author of Being Ugly, Southern Women Writers and Social Rebellion and Dear Regina Flannery O'Connor's Letters from Iowa coming out now from University of Georgia Press. Welcome to the podcast both of you it is a pleasure to be speaking with you. How's it going? Thanks. It's going well. <laughs> Thanks, you, Carrie. We're happy to be here. Good. Well, I've had a chance to see this collection form from a distance, um, and each time I heard a drop more about it, I got even more excited to see it come to the fruition. Every time I would hear, like, one tiny subject of one piece, I would be like, I can't believe this exists, and I can't wait to have it in my hands. So I'm very excited. <laughs>
2: That's funny. That's kind of how we feel about it, too. The more we think about it, the more we're like, wow, this is amazing. And also going back and rereading some of the uh, things from our contributors. I'm
0: like, these essays are so good. Yes. Well, I'm excited to hear more. Uh, So before we get into the collection itself, I would love to have you each kind of tell us a little bit about your academic and professional backgrounds. Um, How did you come to Southern Literary Studies generally? Uh, Katie, why don't you go first?
2: Yeah, um, I don't want to speak for Monica too much, but I think we both had kind of a circuitous route um, to where we are right now. Um, I actually started off as a German major in college and studied abroad in Germany and did not want to have anything to do with the U.S. (laughs) at all, um, especially the South. Um, I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee, where I live now, and uh, I went to UT Knoxville. But um, once I graduated with a German major and realized that I my German was not that great. (laughs) Um, Even with all of that, I I kind of had a couple of years where I was just sort of figuring things out. And I was like, you know what, I'll apply to grad school in English. I always really liked my English classes. Um, And I just sort of, happenstance landed at University of Mississippi, which is one of the sort of epicenters for Southern studies in a lot of ways. And uh, also just by happenstance landed in Jay Watson's class on early American literature and class um, in the South. And um, from there, I developed a project on uh, antebellum writing and uh, ended up going to UT Knoxville uh, back again for my PhD and writing my dissertation on um, Annabelle and fiction in the South and uh, economics. And so in a lot of ways, like even though I'm from the South and sort of actively resisted any sort of allegiance, it just kept pulling me back in. And uh, that's where I'm at right now.
0: That sounds very familiar. (laughs) Monica, how about you?
1: Yes, circuitous is a good word. Um, I grew up a lot of places, but we lived in Georgia for nine years. And when we moved to Ohio my senior year of high school, I realized just how much I missed Southern culture and the South. Um, And I did, it took me 17 years to finish my bachelor's degree. But during that time, um, I really did look to literature and music to remind me of home. Um, And so when I did um, start going back to finish my bachelor's at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, I was a, a secretary at the law school and was able to take classes on my lunch hour. I discovered that there was a class called Southern Literature that you could take um and i was very excited that flannery o'connor's wise blood was on the syllabus because i had read it by myself and it's a really really weird book and i was very excited to have tom haddocks to ask okay I need you to explain the gorilla to me, you know, what is going on in this wacky book. Um, and so, yeah, when I realized um, after 17 years I was about to finish my bachelor's degree, I'm like, well, like Katie, I'll apply to graduate school. Um, and I got my master's at UT, which is where the two of us met. And then I went on um, to get my PhD at LSU. And I'm glad that I took the circuitous route because a lot of the things that I write about gender and beauty and aesthetics are things that I was interested in just on my own and read about on my own. In fact, when I lived in New Orleans, um, I went to the National Women's Studies Association as a local activist. Um, I I got a scholarship. And going to this academic conference and people were talking about Leslie Feinberg and I'm like, oh, all these books that I've read on my own. You can, there's a thing that you can go and talk to people about these books that you've read. This sounds like a great career path.
0: Yeah, good. This makes me feel better. That's how I ended up in in food studies kind of too, right? Things that I was interested in and uh, obsessed about as a person and realized that the scholars were obsessed about them too. Very exciting. Uh, well, first of all, you, you've you been working on two books together, and both of them are coming out in 2022. Um, and you mentioned you met at UT Knoxville. How did you come to be collaborators?
2: So I wish we had more of a meet cute <laughs> story <laughs> to go with this. But I think our collaboration, of, and again, Monica, you can stop me here if you don't agree with this. But evolved in a very organic way that really came from just having a good rapport. Um, and we also had these weird connections that we found out sort of along the way, as we've gotten to know each other. So like fun fact, um, Monica worked for a judge and a law professor who my husband also worked for while he was in law school at UTK. So we keep finding out all these things like why didn't we meet sooner? You know, <laughs> um, so I guess it is kind of a meet cute, but um, it, I guess in terms of the collaboration on paper, Monica and I don't really have a lot in common research-wise. I'm pretty squarely in the 19th century antebellum stuff. Um, she does more kind of like 20th century and contemporary Southern literature. But in terms of the ideas and the way we approach literature, we have a whole lot in common. And so we started off, we ostensibly met at, in graduate school, but we actually didn't have a whole lot of overlapping classes. But then once we started attending conferences, once we both kind of advanced in our graduate uh Studies, we both started, we just kept running into each other and kind of gravitating toward each other and kind of finding out that we had a lot in common. Where I feel like we complement each other in a really, really nice way, where we approach things in similar ways, but from very, very different angles and kind of meet in the middle. So I start with the earlier stuff, she starts with the later stuff, and then the twain shall meet sort of thing. I don't know, Monica, you want to add more to that?
1: Well, I think we also have a very similar work ethic, which I think has helped a lot. I think because we've both had jobs outside of academia, we've had office jobs, we have a lot of the kind of really boring rote skills that you need um, to be able to, to do projects like this. The Rutledge book has 88 um, articles in it. So being able to have spreadsheets and emails and email templates and keep track of things, we both kind of respond to email in the same amount of time. Um, we both tend to work, you know, have similar, you know, working times during the week that we that we do things. And I have certainly learned a lot from Katie, because she has a lot more kind of administrative responsibilities than I do. And, and the way that she organizes just her work during the week is something that I um, have just flat out copied um, <laughs> in terms of trying to get things done. But I do I do think that I agree that on paper we look completely different, but um, we really, the more we work together, I think the more that we discover that we're uh, have overlapping interests and also are just, you know, compatible to work with.
2: We like to text each other about new office supplies and spreadsheets like with (laughs) serving regularity (laughs) because I'm glad you mentioned having other jobs too, Monica, because uh, I've thought about this when we were working with Rutledge and having to deal with so many different contributors and so many different entries. It reminds me a lot of during my lost years, if you want to call them that, between undergrad and graduate school, I worked in a kitchen and I was a prep manager and a cook. And uh, it reminds me a lot of just the ordering process, what figuring out like, when do you need to do certain things and managing uh, schedules and things like that translates Surprising the wall into academia hey, yeah. <laughs> and book writing. So,
0: <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Trello and my uh, Trello boards. So I get it. <laughs> Monica, where did the idea for the book begin? You describe it a little bit in the acknowledgements, but uh, for our listeners, tell us. And then what kind of uh, need you saw for a collection like this? Sure. We'll
1: see. This is the need, mm-hmm. cute. Um, yeah. I was at a conference um, in New Orleans, which I think I'd love to know just how many books start with, I was in a bar in New Orleans, um, but I was <laughs> at an American Literature Association um, conference in New Orleans. And I was um, hanging out with Michael Bibler, who's one of our contributors. He's um, an amazing professor um, and scholar at LSU. Um, and he was working on, he'd written a little bit about the B-52s. He was thinking about concepts of silliness and campiness and playfulness. Um, And so we were sitting in this bar talking about these concepts and looking up um, on our phones the difference between campy and playful and tacky came up Um, and when we saw that tackiness has southern etymological roots that before um, the 19th century tacky meant sticky. Um, but there are these wonderful um, etymological roots in South Carolina horse, uh, horse culture that the people who attended the tack courses were referred to as the tackies. Um, we were very excited to learn that tackiness actually comes from the South. Um, and so thinking about, we we, just, we had to do, um, put together a conference panel about this. There was an upcoming Society for the Study of Southern Literature conference coming up in Boston. And so we texted Katie um, who asked why we chose her to text, um, but we both like Katie. Um, <laughs> Katie likes the b 52s, Katie likes weird stuff. Um, and uh, Michael pointed out that Katie does the 19th century so we're like she has got to have, she'll have a really interesting perspective of thinking about the 19th century because Michael wanted to write about the B-52s, and I thought I could write something um about kind of women um and kind of southern living culture and tackiness. So um we texted Katie from that bar and as she uh likes to tell the story, she gets she was very cranky at us for texting her from our bar in New Orleans um, (laughs) because she was at her office actually working. Um, But we put together this panel we got a lot of response and Katie and I, you know, continued to put together several panels for the Modern Language Association for um, Southern American Studies, I think, Association. um, And then LSU expressed interest in the project and we just continued to work on it, putting it together. And I think there hadn't been really um, a scholarly approach to tackiness. Um, Charles Reagan Wilson, who wrote the foreword um, for the book, he had done a little bit of work and he'd actually collected um, a really interesting collection that's at the University of Mississippi now. Um, But so often when you get books about tackiness, it's more kind of a, hey, here are the places in Georgia to see, you know, the big chicken and uh, Howard Finster's work or, you know, look at this, but there really wasn't a serious um, approach to it.
0: And I think in a lot of
2: ways, if there had been an approach, um, I'm glad you mentioned Charles Forward because uh, Charles Reagan Wilson is probably one of the tackiest experts, one of the tackiest men alive, I'll say it on air. Um, But he is also a delight, but uh, not a lot like Monica was saying had been done specifically about tackiness in relation to region in the South. It had been a little bit more diffuse in terms of uh, discussions of tackiness or trashiness um, in relation to class. So um, we owed a pretty big debt to Nancy Eisenberg's uh, work on white trash and um, Matt Ray and Annalie Newitz's uh, essay collection, White Trash 2 were pretty informative, but neither have that kind of specific re- regionality that we felt really needed to be teased out, especially given the etymological roots that Monica mentioned.
0: we're going to talk about dolly parton later but in the introduction and on the cover uh is dolly and all of her glory what makes this a good moment or what's sort of the it's dolly's moment right and also
1: kind of a tacky moment talk a little bit more about that connection monica well as we talk about the introduction it was it became kind of frustrating because as we were working on this in twenty twenty. Um, 2019, it seemed like every five minutes, Dolly Parton did something else. Um, she gave money to fund a COVID vaccine. Um, she had a line of of things at Williams Sonoma. Um, Tracy McMillan Cotton wrote about her. Um, there was Dolly Parton's America podcast. Um, Time Magazine called it the Dolly moment. Um, and so we were already working on this, but it seemed, you know, especially auspicious that as we are trying to write about the significance of Tackiness and the American South that Dolly Parton, who is such an emblem of tackiness and its excess and it's kind of reveling and celebrating um, excess and and doing things that don't quite hit the mark um, because they're fun. Um, that she was, that um, seemed like an uh, it seemed auspicious that she was so in the zeitgeist at the moment that we were trying to write about it. So it was on the one hand really wonderful, and on the other hand really frustrating because we wish she would take a yeah. day off um, so <laughs> we could finish our introduction. Good
0: point. <laughs> I like that uh, the coincidence then, right? So not that she started it for you, but it just so happened, right? Uh, Katie, a lot of the essays in the collection work on defining what's tacky, and we've already heard a couple of definitions, but tell us what tacky is.
2: Yeah, so I'd say a very, very simple definition is that it's an aesthetic mode that sort of delights in, revels in, or adopts just kind of being over the top, being too much being excessive, like uh, Monica was already saying. But I think in a lot of ways, that very simple definition um, doesn't really get at the complexities of how tackiness gets employed, um, specifically in regard to how the intentionality behind it. Um, this is something that comes up a lot in the collection about when tackiness a lot of times is used and monica and i point this out in the introduction it kind of has a dual process on one hand it can be something that gets labeled on somebody and on the other hand it's something that uh, someone or or a community can take on as sort of a mantle Um, but in both processes even if they have kind of this Um, seeming contradiction, there is that kind of intent behind it where someone is intentionally putting that label or someone is intentionally performing this idea of tackiness. And so that intentionality and that idea of the dual processes, I think, is something that's really important. And it reveals something that I'm going to borrow from Michael Bibler again um, in his essay, where he talks about the seamlessness of tacky, that that over-the-top quality, that kind of too much quality, where something's just a little off, where you see those seams, the anti-seamlessness <laughs> that he talks about is really at the heart of what tacky is. It's not just an aesthetic mode, it's it's an aesthetic mode plus one that in, can be employed in so many different very thoughtful and sometimes unthoughtful ways to really play with identity and to play and revel in different types of identity and as we take care to point out in the the collection again it can cut both ways but that kind of over-the-topness with intent is one of the kind of key elements of defining it.
1: Um, monica would you add anything to that yeah i think it's just michael writes about wigs in the b-52s and that you know in appropriate culture we you're not supposed to be able to tell that something is a wig. In tacky culture, you're reveling in the fact that it's a wig, um, or that you can see um, a bit of the underside of the wig, or that you can see yeah. that your slip is showing, or basically it's, it's that you're missing, that you're missing something somehow.
0: I love that definition, and I want to talk about it too, because that kind of exposing the seams is one of my uh, grandmother's, like, most horrific forms of tacky, right? Was that she would buy a ready made garment and the seams of the fabric would not align in perfect. So she would take it apart and put it back together, right? My family lived in horror uh, of being seen as tacky. So I'm with you.
1: right in fact in sewing my mother my mother would always point out that if you're going to sew something the inside needs to look just as good as the outside
0: Mm -hmm. she was also well known for changing the buttons so you could get a ready-made thing with those like plain plastic buttons you put something classier on it and all of a sudden right things are better (laughs) um okay so monica in the introduction both of you are writing but you use scare quotes for both tacky and southernness and Southern identity. Uh, so talk a little bit about this kind of air quotes around those words.
1: Sure, well, anybody who is familiar with Southern studies knows that what the South or, see, I, I, I'm moving my <laughs> hands to, to do the air quotes, <laughs> that the South or Southern identity is something that we, we agree that there is no one fixed definition of the South. In fact, their entire, books talking about different ways. Do we define the South as um, the states that seceded into the Confederacy? Do we talk about um, the sweet tea line, about where you can get sweet tea at McDonald's? Is it a cultural thing? Is it a self-identified thing? Is it a geographical thing or a climate thing? So there's so many ways that you can talk about the South, Or the different Souths, right? Because the Mountain South and the Florida South and the Texas South might as well be different countries. So anything having to do with Southern or the South immediately gets put into scare quotes because um, we want to make sure that we're not trying to say there is one fixed rigid South that we all agree on, even though the South is deployed as and claimed as an identity in a very similar way that people deploy and identify with tackiness. Um, as Katie was talking about on the one hand, tackiness can be something that, that we claim proudly like Dolly Parton or like Wearing Rhinestones or um, um, uh, songs like Rednecks, White Socks and Blue Ribbon Beer. Or it can be something that's used um as an accusation at somebody else right as a a judgment on somebody else that that they're showing that they're trying and they're not quite making the mark so all of these things the 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 quotes call attention to the fact that these are as we would say in academia vexed terms right that people use these words like we think that there's one definition while knowing that there's just really not
0: slipperiness yeah um, OK, so, Katie, the collection covers a pretty wide range of popular culture icons. We've already heard about some of them. Um, subjects from Murder, She Wrote and the Golden Girls to Casey Musgraves, 19th century periodicals, smutty novels, <laughs> reality TV, drag queens, Robert key, B-52s. I can't even. Um, Nashville, Appalachia, the Ozarks, urban landscapes, rural landscapes. Can you describe kind of the time and place of the collection? can you give kind of a lay of land for the listeners?
2: Yeah. um, So in terms of the general thematics, we do have it broken up into these three general sections, which I know we're going to talk about. But um, the three sections themselves are designed to fit that kind of dual process that Monica and I've been talking about, where the first section, policing tackiness, is about the, the labeling that we've been discussing. And the second section, revolutionary tackiness, is about the you know, taking on of that mantle. And then the final section, Dolly, is, um, well, it's just Dolly. And, you know, <laughs> and that's what we can all agree on. But I think in terms of the lay of the land and sort of like what the the region of Tacky would look like is we're really loosely following the OED definition that Monica already mentioned, where we're trying to uh, structure the essay so that they were in some ways tracing out the etymological roots of tackiness through the different topics that they were addressing. So you notice in each section, um, we ha- we start off with the kind of early 19th century or 19th century origin, and then go on up through the contemporary moment. And so in a lot of ways, we wanted to play with the themes of tacky and the definitions of tacky that we've been trying to tease out, but also sort of play with exactly what Monica was just talking about, of the, the air quote south of what does the south look like if we're merging this idea of tackiness with a discussion of region how are we defining that region or how are we not defining that region to keep building on that idea of slipperiness. And so you notice the essays in addition to following that general chronological structure, they go from Appalachia to the Ozarks from Florida to, And so in some ways, very loosely geographically outlining what the South looks like, but also kind of questioning those geographic origins with things like Jill Anderson's um, Murder, She Wrote um, essay where it's thinking about, okay, if we're outlining what the South and tackiness looks like, what does that look like when you, take it out of the south and do something completely different with it
1: yeah we've had a lot of questions about the murder she wrote one and it is there are episodes of murder she wrote that have these really weird antebellum flashbacks in the south and so um, we get this really strange vision of the tacky south from the perspective of this um, main based show yeah
0: Monica, your essays in the first section policing tackiness. So maybe tell us about the common theme of that section.
1: Sure. Well, as Katie was talking about just now, right, um, this is the section where we address um, take on a lot of kind of stereotypes of, say, Blanche in the uh, Golden Girls or um, stereotypes of Jimmy Dean Smith talks about the stereotype of um, pedophilia in Appalachian culture. Um, my article, um, I talk specifically about how, you know, tackiness is used to delineate um, and police, you know, what is in a particularly appropriate um, white Southern uh, ideal of womanhood and, and kind of lifestyle aesthetics. Um, and so all of these articles talk about um, the ways in which um, tackiness is both, you uh, taken on as a, as a as a mantle of pride, um, but even more so, I think, of pointing to um, the other and using tackiness as a way of um, delineating appropriate and other.
0: Yeah, your essay reminded me a little bit of your work in Being Ugly, kind of that same idea of the expectations for women's appearances and how those are being policed uh, and kind of maybe Pushed against as well. Um, you draw your material from a lot of different places, but what are some of the stories or media outlets where women are getting messages about their expectations and the consequences of tackiness?
1: Well, I start by taking on Reese Witherspoon, of course, um, and her and her Draper James aesthetic, um, because in several articles, um, she she quotes her grandmother that um, a Southern woman will never be seen in in public in sweatpants, um, and there's this real. The thing that I discovered in writing it is there is this particular um, Southern Living, Garden and Gun, Draper James, Upscale Nashville, Upscale Atlanta, um, kind of white Southern, especially female ideal that is promoted in these outlets, while it's also admitted that it's impossible to achieve. Um, In fact, um, I talk about Reese Witherspoon's book, Whiskey in a Teacup which is the title of it, it's her grandmother's characterization of Southern women, that women are a pure, fragile, um, like a beautiful antique teacup, but in fact, um, like whiskey in a teacup, there's actually um, something very strong in the middle of it. Um, I look at that, and I think, well, you're also lying about drinking during the day, um, <laughs> and that's really troubling, and much of her focus talking about, you know, how to... Uh, organize your living room so that everything is hidden in cubbies and in baskets. And so there's this real focus on um, this appropriate facade while admitting that it's unachievable.
0: Yeah, and you also kind of take on her appropriation of Dolly and how
1: inappropriate that might be, right? Or mismatched maybe. It's so weird. I still find it really curious that in within this lifestyle aesthetic, Southern lifestyle aesthetic, there's a real love of Dolly Parton. In fact, Draper James sells pillows that say, What would Dolly do? And I wonder what they're actually asking that about, because they're certainly not going to dress like Dolly or wear their makeup like Dolly. Um, maybe it's be a successful businesswoman like Dolly. Maybe it's um, the kinds of themes in Dolly Parton's work of acknowledging your roots. Um, and being a strong woman and those sorts of themes maybe it's those that they're claiming um, but I do find it, it really curious that um, this very subtle gingham um, lifestyle uh, southern lifestyle aesthetic of like southern living has so claimed Dolly as an icon because it seems so aesthetically mismatched to me
0: yeah Katie, your essay is in part two, Revolutionary Tackiness. So same question. What kind of binds those essays together?
2: Yeah, so it, one of the my favorite things that Monica has said, and I, I can't remember if it's in the essay, but that one of the ways you can think about tackiness, you know, is, is your bra strap showing. And so I, I think if the first section is about things or people or, you know, cultural entities that are all about pointing out someone's bra, bra strap showing. I'd say the second section is about, you know, communities or individuals who look very blatantly pull the bra strap out point out that they just did it and also point out that it's a bright neon orange and you should pay attention to it you know so that idea of revolutionary tackiness really is about oh also for the podcast listeners i just pulled my bra strap out yeah Um, of course (laughs) (laughs) um, but uh so i'd say most of the essays in this section are really about taking on the identity of tackiness or sort of the mode of tackiness um, and owning it um, and reveling in it and doing something interesting And in a lot of cases subversive with it. So uh, following that kind of general chronological trajectory, one of the first essays is by Jared Hayes. And it's, I I love this essay because it's very personal. It starts off because Jared's from the South and he talks about kind of his own personal relationship with the South. And then he takes it to 19th century Louisiana (laughs) and starts talking about. And so In a lot of ways that he sets the tone for that whole section of how tackiness becomes this kind of deeply personal thing that a lot of us struggle with, but how do we see in these different case studies, if you want to call them that in each essay, how folks are struggling with it, but then you know, embracing it and doing something really cool with it. So, you know, you have Joe Farmer talking about the Ozarks, you have um, Travis talking about Robert Keene, Marshall talking about red velvet cake, which everybody wants to talk about. And of course, Michael Bibler doing uh, the B-52s who they're all about just celebrating that seamlessness and doing something fun with tacky and showing as many bra straps as they possibly can.
0: Well, in your essay, you kind of focus on tacky with the definition that's kind of like uh, akin to uncanny, right? Uh, Separating those who know the rules from those who don't. Um, But you're also thinking about the poor whites who ride bad horses as tackies. Um, So you're focused on the 19th century frontier humor, where tackiness is a joke between the author and the reader. And I'd love to hear you talk more about kind of that relationship between writer and reader. Um, But what kind of rebellion and subversion do you see in those tackies?
2: Yeah, so for folks who are unfamiliar with these kind of early 19th century frontier stories, um, one, when Monica and Michael first texted me from New Orleans, and I was in my my Office and very crabby, crabbily creating papers. Um, the first things that I thought of when I heard the OED definition were these, what are often called old Southwest humor stories from about the 1820s, 30s, 40s, um, which are mostly set in what at the time was the Southwest, so like Alabama, Georgia. Um, and the way these stories are usually read, so they're usually funny stories, or they're supposed to be, I don't know, it's 19th century funny, so who knows what that is. But um, they're supposed to be funny, they're usually uh, published in uh, periodicals, both national and regional periodicals. And the way they've been traditionally interpreted um, sent by literary critics since like the 1940s or 50s is through what um, the critic Kenneth Lynn called in like 1959, the cordon sanitaire. So this idea of the person who is writing these stories is going in and viewing these lower class white folks um, with kind of an element of distance and creating that distance for the readers themselves so you have these kind of middle class white readers kind of watching these poor whites and just kind of treating them you know as a joke from a distance where they're just sort of you know comical a lot of folks have also applied this kind of boctinian reading like it's a carnivalesque it's like a a a, a way of releasing some of these tensions of class and and race and all these other things. But the way I've kind of applied tackiness here where it it ends up having this kind of revolutionary quality is that that kind of, you know, cordoning off process that happens um, is too simple because that relationship between the reader and what's going on in the story gets much more complicated if you kind of think about like, wait, so how did this author then come up with the story? Are they observing it? Are they participating in? It? We don't really know. And then how much is the reader also participating in? And so I think it also comes back to that idea of intentionality that's at the heart of the definition of tackiness is that um, we're not really sure as readers and we're not really sure. And so it kind of leaves it all up in the air for that Interpretation and invites our sort of participation in that. And that ends up subverting a lot of those kind of class hierarchies that a traditional interpretation of the stories really reinforces in a lot of ways.
0: Your essay also has tackiness complicated by race, especially because you're looking at uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, short story, right? So talk a little bit more about what difference it makes in how you read the story to think about how his race is involved.
2: Yeah, so uh, again, for folks, I hope this isn't turning into my American literature lecture (laughs) series, but uh, for folks unfamiliar with Paul Lawrence Dunbar, he was a a poet primarily, but also a fiction writer at the turn of the century, so end of the 19th, end of the 20th century, African-American writer, mostly from um, the, he focused on the Midwest. Uh, He was from Dayton, Ohio, Um, and I'd say in terms of reading the story, it was less, for me about changing how I read that particular story and more how I read Dunbar as an author and the rest of his works and how that story allowed me to rethink um, a lot of his writing Um, because the story, the reason I focused on it is just so weird. Um, It's, if you didn't know Dunbar wrote it, it would frankly be a very uninteresting version of the frontier humor from earlier in the century where it's a very very basic kind of mining story there's like a plot twist and then there's there's this kind of weird sentimental ending where they all kind of come together and the dialect is just ridiculous (laughs) where you're reading it and you're just like what is this but then when you find out Dunbar was writing it and and I came into it knowing that Dunbar was writing it you find these moments where the I talk about this in the essay where the dialogue or the dialect just kind of breaks and it stops you know, he stops using it and it moves into this like formal English. And again, it kind of plays with that intentionality. Um, And for me, thinking about that story as something that is employing a mode of tackiness, made me completely rethink a lot of Dunbar's other work. A lot of which was about... um, You know, more about topics and experiences that he wasn't immediately familiar with, but he's playing with these different identities in ways that really subvert expectations, especially for Black authors at the time, and doing something really interesting and and very kind of subversive um, with an idea of identity at a moment when identity was really um, something that was particularly fraught because the story was published just a few years before Plessy versus Ferguson uh, decision was handed down. So Yeah, so it really kind of tackiness sort of opened up the conversation for me in a lot of ways of thinking about Dunbar's work, but also other works by authors at the same time period.
0: All right, the last section is called Dolly as Common Ground. And of course I guessed the theme before I even read the essays, um, but these were some of my favorites uh, and I really enjoyed, I got a chance to hear some of the contributors talk about these essays uh, at a conference that we just attended. Um, Why country music generally and Dolly Parton in particular as so tacky what made them kind of a such a theme that they needed their own section
1: well i think first of all country music as an industry as an aesthetic as um a cultural product has such a um it has such a strong affiliation uh, association with the with the south and also people who claim it as a kind of affiliation um as several of our writers talk about um and as the South has often been seen as a marginalized um, region of the US South. So country music has also kind of taken this like marginalized uh, identity and claimed it and you know used it as their flag. Um, and I think so much of the traditional themes of country music are reveling in tackiness, reveling in not fitting in with the white collar crowd or um, we have a wonderful um, essay um, by is- Isabel Dwart Gray on uh, nudie suits, right? The rhinestone nudie suits, the kind of Porter Wagner aesthetic um, of country music. Um, so, so much of country music is, is, that, um, is, is that both, right? The people claiming tackiness and f- claiming marginalization and claiming not fitting in um, as a proud identity. It's also then been, um, Itself marginalized and seen as, you know, a lesser than art form um, in being deemed tacky. So, so much of country music is just the story of, of Southern tackiness. And then of course, Dolly Parton um, reveling, kind of making this her brand. Um, I was thinking, you know, I think we often think about like her garishness and things like that, but I think that even Code of Many Colors, um does exactly what we're talking about right that she had because she was poor she had the coat that her mother made from you know patchwork scraps everybody made fun of it but actually she took pride in it i think is the kind of sincere aspect of tackiness um that it's kind of easy to overlook when you know seen in kind of the larger more spectacular kind of tackiness that she often represents
0: katie is nashville the tackiest city in america
2: no <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was a little too quick there. I, that's a really good question.
0: No. I didn't prepare you
2: for it. No, 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 no. You're good. I would say no, only because of some of the things that Monica was identifying—that kind of weird tension that emerges in the kind of like Draper James Nashville versus, mm-hmm. you know. New Nashville versus whatever else. Um, because I, I'm originally from Nashville, I'd have to say like the kind of evolution of Nashville in the past few years has definitely been a little baffling to me. and I think uh, the Reese Witherspoon adoption of Dolly is kind of a perfect emblem of that in some mm. ways because uh, Reese Witherspoon very much represents this kind of like old style Bell Mead Nashville um, that would never have even been caught, you know, dead being in the same room with like something related to Dolly Parton in like 1995, but now it's kind of like emerged as this thing. And that's sort of like how Nashville itself is sort of evolving. It's just like, we wanna kind of adopt these kind of things like tackiness or Dolly or whatever, but there's still this kind of sheen of like money and you know, whatever else that's going on. So, and to me, it's not. No, it's like, it's got tacky elements, but I don't know, Monica, what would you say would be like the tackiest place? I think Nashville's Is too big.
0: New Orleans. Is New
2: Orleans the tackiest maybe city? North, maybe Sevierville. <laughs> if <you want> to <laughs> talk about the like, and I love that Sevierville, but I feel like Nashville might be too bougie in some might way. Be too bougie. Yeah, <laughs> like you gotta have a little rougher edge. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like other good like tacky places, but.
1: The first panel presentation, Katie talked about um, Severeville and Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg and what I call the pancake district um, of Gatlinburg um, and <laughs> things like that. But again, we're getting into these other, weird, the slipperiness of the categories, right? Because right. what's tacky and what's campy? I mean, Goats on the Roof in Tiger, Georgia is one of my favorite places to go um, because they have goats that are up on the roof of the shop and <laughs> and you can feed them and they sell really good um so there is this again as we're trying to to, every time we try to define or pin down what is the tackiness tackiest or what is tackiness Mm -hmm. it slips away from you
0: yeah and maybe that's one of the themes running through the whole collection uh katie do you want to say any more about other themes or threads that you see
2: yeah, actually the slipperiness thing was gonna be my very first thing. Um, so one of our favorite sentences in the entire collection is in, is the very first sentence in Susanna Young's essay, um, which I think is also the very last essay in the collection where she talks about, I'm not gonna recite the whole thing here, you need to go read it for yourself, it's amazing. <laughs> um, but she talks about the slipperiness of tackiness. And I'd say that would be the one kind of major theme over and over again and why so many of our um, essays are trying to define tackiness for themselves, because I think that's what ends up happening. Um, When we think about tackiness, it does end up being kind of situationally dependent. Going back to that uh, Southwest humor uh, thing I was talking about with my essay, um, so much is dependent upon the viewer and those who are also performing tackiness, this kind of exchange that happens. And so it is very sort of uh, ephemeral and slippery. But um, I'd also say another theme is uh, one of the things that Monica and I've returned to frequently in our conversation now is that duality, um, where there is this tension between how much are you taking on this as a point of pride, and how much is it being projected on you as a pejorative, um, and that kind of, again, tension that emerges. Um, And I'd say another consistent theme is um, the seams. You know how are things sort of showing themselves how are things kind of how is that slipperiness allowing us to see stuff coming apart or things coming together and the process of all of that Um, and I'd also say one final thing that I don't think we've really talked about that much but Monica brought it up is this idea of sincerity Um, So often in our struggle to define what tackiness is, seeing it as an aesthetic mode, trying to label things as tacky, we kind of forget when tackiness becomes something that is really speaking to a real truth of someone's identity. And that's something that I found particularly helpful because it de-essentializes a lot of things and allows us to kind of talk about things in a really true way. Um, As a really weird plug, Monica and I have started a uh, Spotify playlist for the Tacky South. one of the songs that Monica put on there was Dolly Parton, Backwoods Barbie. And I was listening to that song the other day in the car with my daughter and actually listening to the lyrics, which, you know, I never do. Um, And I was like, this is a deeply sincere song. We always kind of throw off this idea of Backwoods Barbie as a way of describing Dolly Parton, but it's really talking about, she's like, no, I love this stuff. I want to look like this. I think I look beautiful. And I think that's another thing that comes across in a lot of the essays of how tackiness can take on that sincere um, tone or that sincere you know, mantle, I've used that word a few times, in, in a good way, so.
0: yeah. You know, and we haven't talked about it too much except for Monica's brief essay. But one of the themes I saw was the way that gender plays in here, that tackiness is often specifically about women or for women. Uh, Monica, do you want to say a little bit more about that as a theme?
1: Sure. I mean, I was just thinking about that feeling of liberation the first time that I bought a thrift store leopard print coat and put it on. And, you know, that I would have never been allowed to wear growing up. Um, in in that kind of Southern living South that I was raised in. So um, there is this wonderful feeling of liberation and enjoyment of, of breaking the rules in a safe way and deploying tackiness in the kind of acceptable uh, areas like going to a bar in Nashville, um, wearing pink cowboy boots and a matching hat um, does feel fun and libera- and liberating. Um, and you know it's we talked about gender quite a bit and I found nothing about fathers and tackiness fathers have don't tell anybody they're being tacky Um, something that um, uh, I I wish we had had more about but I just don't see tackiness as being something that southern masculinity is just all that concerned with I mean being there's no such thing as being too much of a guy you know um, maybe it gets labeled as bro culture now. But I, I think that it is these kinds of rules of appropriateness are still um, aimed at women in ways that I just don't think as much they're aimed at men.
2: Mm-hmm. But I do wonder, though, that, Carrie, since you brought up the idea of gender and Monica's race, the I, idea of it not being applied to masculine-identified um, individuals quite as much, I was thinking not to refer again to our Spotify playlist, but my husband was really trying to get me to add honky-tonk, badonkadonk to our- <laughs> And I was really resistant to it because I hate that song. <laughs> I just hate it with a passion. But if you think about it, it is this over the top Overly performed heteronormative, like cis masculinity, that is super tacky. And I kind of wonder if bro culture might be the answer to that because the counterparts to the, the bachelor at Cowboy Boots in Nashville are their like broed out bachelor parties and they're equally as tacky, but just in different ways.
1: And maybe if they just are- maybe, you know, because we do have Travis Browntree's article on Robert O'Keefe. And so you're right, there is, and certainly in country music country music has allowed men to be performative and fancy in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. I mean, you could, you could only dress up like Porter Wagner if you're on the Porter Wagner show, you can't just, you know, go to Kmart, dress like Porter Wagner. Um, But, um, but you're right. I think that uh, pro culture is a really interesting way to think about it. Um, Yeah. Again, in that kind of excess, but I think that maybe men are allowed that more than, and, and aren't going to be quite as, as caricatured or frowned upon as women would be. Because I agree. But when you hear about Nashville, it's it, the stereotype is always the bachelorette party and not the bachelor party, even though I, as you point out, bachelor parties are just as obnoxious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And there are also essays in the collection that talk about like queer identities and how they play with tacky as well. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Um, Katie, what are some of your maybe must-reads of the collection? Are there a couple of pieces that are really making a contribution that you think we ought to highlight? Uh,
2: Monica and I keep joking that uh, we love all of our essays equally, just like our children. No, seriously, we really do love uh, all of the essays. Um, but I'd say a couple that I would point out, in addition to some that we've already mentioned. Um, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Jill Anderson's piece on Murder, She Wrote in Golden Girls, precisely for some of the reasons I've already mentioned, that she takes some of these um themes and these topics that are being applied to the South particularly and brings them into a national conversation in a really interesting way using the Golden Girls and Murder, She Wrote, to do so. I'm also a big fan of Marshall Armentor's piece because he talks about red velvet cake and he doesn't love talking about it. But he was also very, very thoughtful in thinking about the history of red velvet cake and taking into considerations of race, uh, racial identity, um, minstrelsy, all of these things that normally you would just be like, he's just writing about cake. But it, he he was so thoughtful and so smart with it. Um, and then a couple others that I would highlight. Um, I'm a huge fan of Jolene Hubb, Essay. Um, she, if you're interested specifically in the etymological origins of tackiness and kind of thinking about the history of it, she is so sharp and thinking about it in relation to local color fiction in the late 19th century, and it has pictures that are great. Um, and then one final one is Catherine Wagner's uh, essay on the Shaka Ben. I am a big fan of that one too, and it also has pictures um, because she talks <laughs> about um, thinking about that adoption of tackiness and what are the sort of Ooh, I, I'm trying to think of a better word than ickiness, but the icky things that
0: come about from it too. So, Monica, same question: What are some of your favorite pieces?
1: Well, of course, the B-52 started it all. You know that conversation that Michael Bibler and I had about the B-52s. I'm also a real fan of Aaron Deplanche's um, article on um, the Duck Dynasty um series because we got so many proposals about reality television which quite frankly i'm not a fan of reality television and so many of the proposals um just kind of boiled down to well in that honey boo boo a hoot Um, and we really we understood that we really needed to address reality television but so many of our proposals just wanted to kind of uh excuse people's what people felt were guilty pleasure in watching it but what aaron does in his um article is looks at kind of follows the money in reality television. And you know, a lot of these articles do kind of uncover um, the commodities and capitalism that's at the heart of a lot of what we call tackiness. And in fact, something that I can, I'm thinking more about right now is how tackiness um, is used to deflect attention away. How tackiness is kind of used as a cover, um, and people will just dismiss uh, like, oh, I can't, we can't take that seriously. They're just so tacky. Um, this is how Dolly Parton has amassed her empire, um, is taking advantage of people underestimating her. Um, and so the the the, the money, um, the economics um underlying all of this in Aaron DePlanche's article is something that I really admire.
0: Yeah. What are some of the gaps in the collection, Katie? Things that you either wish people had written about and they didn't or things that you might see now as future work?
2: Grandmothers.
0: Uh So this was
2: not something that I was thinking about until our conversation today. But um, one of the things that Monica talks about so well in her essay is this kind of generational gendered Engendering of um, tackiness and the employment of tackiness, and you notice, and I've noticed just in this conversation, but also when we've been talking about our book and and. Public settings, everyone talks about their grandmom like all the time. It's like the first go to, and it's my first go to too. Um, Carrie, when you were mentioning just, you know, your grandmother taking apart things and putting them back together, I was just having flashbacks. (laughs) Not of that exact thing, but that kind of uh, policing and that kind of anxiety that comes with it. And in some ways, I think the grandmother becomes this kind of emblem of all of the things y'all were just identifying as being such a specific gendered aspect of tackiness that I think we do talk about quite a bit, but I think we could do more with it in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that I would also highlight would be a little bit more about race and ethnicity. Um, so one of the earlier contributors who ended up not being in the final version simply just because she, she couldn't do it, but she was on one of our original panels at MLA, um, was uh, writing about reality TV shows like Love and Hip Hop in Atlanta, and, or Love and Hip Hop Atlanta and things like that. And I would have really liked to have had her essay. Um, and. Uh, one of the things that really made me think that we could do a little bit more is um, Monica and I saw a really great presentation at the Society for the Study of Southern Literature just this past week by Adria Goldman. Um, She's at University of Mary Washington, but she was talking about black female bloggers and the Southern Belle stereotype and the adoption of the Southern Belle stereotype. And some of the things that she was describing in terms of the rhetoric and some of the things employed of like this identity of Southernness resonated so much with a lot of the things that Monica and I were talking about. I literally wanted to run up to her and be like, I wish you had written something for her <laughs> so perfect. So thinking about uh, intersections of race and gender, I think would be really helpful too.
0: Yeah, Monica, what do you think? Any other gaps in the collection?
1: Yeah, I actually um, emailed uh, Professor McDonald after the conference to tell her how much I loved her essay. I am big into writing fan letters to people. Um, I agree. I, I I would like to have found more about masculinity and men and tackiness. And like I said, the other thing that I'm thinking about now are the, are the political ramifications of this. Um, um, I think that certainly our last president demonstrated how aesthetic dismissal um, is a really powerful political strategy. Um, You think about how much time was spent talking about Donald Trump's hair, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I think that we see a similar strategy in in, like I said, how Dolly Parton has gone through her career going, sure, underestimate me, you know, that'll be fun. And so I'm thinking much more. We were asked um, in a a Q&A recently about people like Tammy Faye Baker and prosperity gospel. This is another area. Um, that I'm thinking much more about right now. Even I've now dubbed it the um, new Southern strategy of deploying tackiness as a kind of deflector shield um, that, you know, get people to pay attention to, to talk about your hair or your tacky clothes or your tacky behavior, your uncouthness as a shield for actually hiding um, what you're actually doing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the Rutledge Companion to the Literature of the U.S. South. You both worked on that, along with Todd Hogstetter. What can readers expect from that anthology, briefly?
2: Yeah, so the Rutledge Collection is really designed to be a Exactly what the title implies, a companion to the study of Southern literature, um, and really just kind of a reference guide. Um, So we have upwards of 90 different entries and 90 different contributors, which that in and of itself could be like a whole podcast talking about the um, construction of that collection. Um, But each entry is just a brief snippet into a particular topic or a particular author or uh, text um, that for folks, and I'm going to borrow something from Monica here, um, for folks who are say, uh, first time instructors trying to figure out how to teach an intro to Southern lit class or say teaching a modernism class and they want to draw from, you know, the Southern literary canon in some way, like what could be like a quick go-to reference. And so it's really, really comprehensive and very broad in its approach in a lot of ways, kind of it, it's, intimidatingly because mm-hmm. <laughs> it really covers everything. Um, and so it's really just Monica and Todd and I's attempt to not just represent Southern literary studies in a way that you know we want to see it represented, but also rethinking a lot of what that means, uh, especially going back to some of the things that Monica was talking about with the air quotes around Southern, how are we kind of upending some of these assumptions about what Southern literature can be to a broader audience.
0: Yeah, and Monica, will you tell us a little bit about your new book that's coming out?
1: Sure. So um, the book, Dear Regina, Flannery O'Connor's Letters from Iowa, um, is a book of um, when she um, in the 1940s and 1946, um, she left Milledgeville, Georgia. She went to the University of Iowa, where she um, studied in the um, Iowa Writers um, Workshop that is pretty famous for producing some of the 20th century's uh, most important writers. It was the first time that she'd been away from the South. It was the first time she'd been away from home. Um, And she wrote to her mother nearly every day, sometimes twice a day. Um, When we read O'Connor, there's a lot of contentious mother-daughter relationships in her stories. And um, she often characterized her relationship with her mother as rather contentious. Um, Rather than the life of living in New York City and being a famous author that she envisioned for herself, um, her diagnosis with lupus in her early 20s meant that she had to move back Um, home where she and her mother lived um, in Villageville on their family farm, Andalusia, until her death um, at the age of 39. And so um, typically when we read these um, stories like Good Country People um, that have these contentious mother-daughter relationships, we assume that they're very much based on um, her relationship with her mother, which is not not wrong. But the letters that she wrote to her mother from graduate school are a much um, more congenial, chatty, um, kind of, of letters and it's a, it's a Flannery O'Connor that I don't think we've uh, most people have seen before. Um, the letters are in the archive at Emory University that Emory just acquired um, in 2014 and I had actually just moved to Atlanta in 2014 for a postdoc at Georgia Tech and so I immediately went to Emory to read through these letters. And we get, you know, either she's talking about things like clothes and, you know, getting a perm in her hair. We're also hearing about when she meets Robert Penn Warren for the first time, you know, and the kind of feedback that she's getting on her work. Um, and so it's just really a wonderful kind of um, new perspective on O'Connor that I really appreciate. And I know um, both scholars and just fans of her work, I think, will appreciate, too.
0: Yeah. Well, that's three books that you have just completed, Monica. So you would be totally forgiven for taking a break. Um, But are there other projects that you're working on together or independently? Uh, Monica, do you want to go first? Sure.
1: Um, Well, so I am finishing up an article on, um, I interviewed one of Flannery O'Connor's cousins is Mark Klein, who, um, was in the foundational Athens, Georgia band, Love Tractor. Um, and he's now um, a graphic artist in New York City. He has memories of O'Connor um, and he also um, knew her mother quite well. And so I interviewed him about both his memories of O'Connor and also what he thought about their, what they had in common as being you know, artists from Georgia. Um, and so I'm finishing up an article about that. But my next big book project, I'm looking forward to not editing <laughs> um, a book and actually writing some of my own words um, is I've been looking at um, depictions of and references to abortion in pre-Roe Southern literature. And it was weirdly um, inspired by um, Flannery O'Connor's manuscripts. Um, her manuscripts of her first novel, Wise Blood, um, had scenes that talked about and even depicted abortion, which is not something that you think about the Southern Catholic Um, writer writing about in the 1940s. Um, It was uh, cut from the final novel, but some of these scenes were turned into um, stories like her story Judgment Day. Um, But they also reminded me of Dewey Dell and As I Lay Dying, um, who uh, pursues an abortion. And once I started the research, there are a lot of depictions of and references to abortion in pre-rose Southern literature, not all of which are terrible. Some of them are really terrible And um, the article I'm working on right now on an Erskine Caldwell novel is just horrific. Um, but so I think that, um, I think this, I wrote the article on feminism for the Rutledge Companion. And I think that there are a lot of roots of feminism in the South that are often forgotten because I think feminism is often seen as a, as an urban or a coastal movement. And mm-hmm. we forget that Roe v. Wade started in Texas. Um, So I'm really, this is, it's a tough project, but it's one that I think is really important.
0: Well, and I learned about feminism from country music. So (laughs) that makes sense to me. Katie, what are you working on? As much as I
2: would like to echo Monica and say I'm going to never edit anything ever again, I have another editing project <laughs> that I'm in the middle of. Um, I'm working on one of those teaching companions uh, through MLA Press um, teaching approaches to economics and American literature, um, because my primary research focus is on thinking about the intersections of economics and literary form and artistic production. Um, so I'm co-editing that with Amy King, who's a lecturer currently a lecturer at Auburn University. and um, we just submitted the proposal for that, and we have a really great lineup of contributors for it, and it should be coming out next year. Um, You know, we have to write the essays. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but in terms of the broader project, if I ever s- learn to stop taking on editing projects, um, the one that I'm working on is actually feminism-related as well, and thinking about the southern origins of feminism. Um, But really kind of examining the origins of white feminism and the dominance of white feminism and the larger implications that it's had. Um, And this actually comes also like Monica's out of a previous book project where I was looking at some antebellum Southern writers who white female writers who were pretty prominent in women's rights in the 19th century, but were also pro-slavery. And so this is one of the things that's uh, coming under closer examination, very rightfully so, of how white feminism has really shaped the movement over the course of the past couple of centuries. I, I would say for the negative, for example, the there's a recent book that just came out, um, The Trouble with White Women. And so I'm really interested in exploring specifically how some of the rhetoric from the pro-slavery movement ended up dovetailing with some of the early rhetoric of the women's rights movement, because a lot of uh, pro-slavery female writers coming out of the South were also very active in women's rights and were writing um, literary texts that were supporting women's education, you know, freedom to own property and things like that, while they were also advocating for enslaving human beings. And and it's this kind of funky history that not a lot of people really like to talk about. Um, I think, Again, rightfully so. And also, um, Annabelle and stuff is really not fun to read sometimes. (laughs) So so that's kind of my, my larger book project that I've been kind of picking up.
0: Excellent. Well, we've given our listeners a whole lot to look up <laughs> and find. One of the things I'm not going to make them look up is the link to your Spotify playlist. I'm going to put that right up in the bio, right up in the show notes to make sure everybody knows where it is. Um, looking forward to that experience, so um thank you both for being here listeners we've been talking with Catherine burnett and monica miller about their new edited collection the tacky south and uh that comes out in 2022 by lsu press again thank you both for talking to me today i've had a blast and i look forward to talking to you in the future about your other projects thanks thank awesome. you